Have you ever awakened in the morning and thought, man, I just want to roll back over. Like, I don't want to know what this day holds of like this attitude of it's I'm awake. It's just going to go downhill. Or maybe we felt that where there's so much excitement. It's like a kid at Christmas. We can't wait to get up and experience the day. It's this attitude of expectation and excitement. And my guess is that all of us at some point have experienced both of those things and everything in between. This sense of we know that there is an attitude about how we show up for the day or like we use the words fake it till you make it. This sense of, okay, I'm going to plaster a smile on my face whether I feel like it or not. It's that sense of trying to get our attitude in line to change it so that it changes our day. So today we're looking at changed heart, changing attitudes, changed life. And yet sometimes, right, the whole attitude thing we feel like is controlled really about by outside forces, right? The events, the situations that we have to face. Maybe we wake up anxious or we get anxious about something because we don't know what they're going to say, what they're going to do, what's going to happen. And so how do we begin to think about this when we don't always feel like we are in control, when sometimes we just want to go, forget it, the heck with the attitude. Like if it's all just going to fall apart, what's the point anyway? So for the discussion today, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. And a couple weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews is this very complex book, and it offers us insight into how the first century church is trying to deal, trying to roll with, okay, there are these teachings of Jesus, but what does that mean when? And that the book of Hebrews also uses a lot of inner, of imagery from the Hebrew scriptures, which is where it gets its name. And we don't really know who wrote it, but they seem to be very intent on trying to help people understand, trying to give us some encouragement about how to live and making all of these connections in our lives of, okay, this is what changes. This is how it works. This is what it means to have a changed or evolving attitude that really does change our lives. So starting in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So then with endurance, let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us. Since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin that trips us up, and fix our eyes on Jesus, face pioneer and perfecter. He endured the cross, ignoring the shame, for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him and sat down on the right side of God's throne. Think about the one who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't be discouraged and you won't give up. All right, immediately we get this endurance and encouragement in that endurance that just because we're following the ways of Jesus, just because we're trying to do that, doesn't mean that things will come easily. And that we're reminded here that Jesus experienced all of human life. 
He experienced all the mountaintops, the valleys, everything in between. He experienced great hardship and love, all of it. And so we're being reminded here that Jesus endured it all and that it's meant to be an encouragement of going, okay, where are you gaining your strength from? But this sense, an attitude of endurance, it's kind of like I, I often say being consistently persistent. It's like you keep kind of going. It's like, okay, I've got it. I'm going to endure. Like I'm going to get through this. I don't know how, right? I don't know how, but some way, somehow, I am going to get through. There's a sense of an attitude of endurance. And for ourselves, uh, the experiences that we've had in life, of being able to look back on them and not see them in a way of how everything just falls apart, but instead, look what we, how we've made it. How do we figure it out when? To actually be able to draw strength from the past and to be able to draw strength from those we know. Even those stories from the people who are no longer with us of being able to go, okay, how do I draw strength from their story of how they endured, of how they got through? And so a sense of encouragement, a sense of an attitude of encouragement and endurance. Continuing on in verses four through eight, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. And you have forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons and daughters. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline or give up when you are corrected by him. Because the Lord disciplines whomever he loves, and he punishes every son or daughter whom he accepts. Bear hardship for the sake of discipline. God is treating you like sons and daughters. What child isn't disciplined by his or her father? But if you won't experience discipline, which happens to all children, then you are illegitimate and not real sons and daughters. Okay, some strong language, which we have found throughout Hebrews. Sometimes Hebrews gets in and you're like, whoa, like, wait a minute. And part of it lends itself, right? This word discipline. So often in the English language, we actually use discipline in one meaning, and that is punishment. And when we mean punishment, we mean painful, excruciating, like wrap those knuckles with a ruler. But we also have to realize that here, the writer is trying to actually broaden that, of helping us to try to understand something much greater than that. And that requires us to think about all the different ways we understand the word discipline. So here's an example from my own life. I am disciplined in my health. I am disciplined. I go to CrossFit. I exercise all the time. I'm disciplined in the way that I eat, although I still love a good cheeseburger, french fries, and chocolate chip cookies. Oh my. Not perfect. But discipline, right? It, a way that we conduct our lives. In fact, the dictionary even says, it gives all these things. Yes, punishment is one aspect, but here, listen to all the other things that discipline means. Orderly or prescribed conduct or pattern of behavior. Self-control, training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. Field of study. A rule or system of rules governing conduct or activity, instruction, 
right? So there's way more to this meaning of discipline. And so when we're looking at this, when we're, we're thinking through this, because, because the Lord disciplines whomever he loves, that this is coming from a place of love. So here it's about instructing and molding, about guiding, about helping us understand a better way forward. And we know this, right? We absolutely know this, that we always have, at some point, we always have behaviors, habits that really aren't good for us, that really maybe even make our life harder, but we do it because it's easier in the moment or it's more comfortable. It's easier to get angry than take, go, whew, I need to take a breath right here. It's easier to walk away than to apologize and say I was wrong. It's easier to sometimes to do what's wrong instead of what's right. And so this sense of molding and discipline, this sense of allowing God's love to shape us. This isn't negating grace. Actually, this is coming from a place of grace. And he punishes every son or daughter whom he accepts. Okay, so that word punishing here, though, in the context of this love, in the context of guiding and molding, we have to see this as a course correction. It's like saying, okay, I am on this path. And that can be. A course correction can sometimes be really difficult, really painful. It can be hard to disrupt our process of thinking, of the way that we engage, of the way that we respond to people, of the way that we respond to situations. And so we can think of it here as a course correction out of love instead of pain out of need for revenge, out of a need for control or power, but instead love and a course correction of going, you know what, you know, because of God's grace, I realize I need to be on a different path. I realize that I struggle with loving my neighbor. I realize I struggle with getting upset about. I struggle with and being able to take action from that place. Of being able to take action and use words from a place of, you know what, I screw it up a lot. But thank goodness for God's grace and love of trying to guide and mold me in a different direction. Continuing on in verses 9 through 11. What's more, we had human parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Our human parents disciplined us for a little while as it seemed best to them, but God does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline is fun while it lasts, but it seems painful at the time. Later, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Hear that last part again. No discipline is fun while it lasts, I'm going to tell you, there's some days at the gym where it is not any fun. But it seems painful at the time. Later, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Thinking about that, that the things that we discipline ourselves with, the ways that we conduct and mold our lives, the ways that we train, the instruction that we gain, is it producing Fruits of peace. Fruits of peace. 
the things that we practice on a regular basis, how is it directing us towards peace? And then to take a step back and go, wait a minute, what do I have? What, what am I cultivating in my life? What is instructing me? What, is, what do I allow to mold me that absolutely isn't peaceful, that is actually anxious, that is controlling, that has me in a state of fear, of being able to ask yourself that question, of taking a real deep dive in this. Because here's the thing, when we are being trained and molded and guided and having the course correction that is based upon love and grace, we begin to find a path forward in. We begin to find a path forward in peace. So an attitude, right? Coming at things when things happen from a place of love and grace. Not easy. Those two things are not easy. If they were easy, we would have figured this out thousands of years ago. And it seems like everything kind of comes up and cultivates and, and we're like, as the world kind of swirls around us, it gets harder and harder to come from to have an attitude of love and grace. But here's the thing, that sense of endurance is peace. That sense of something more is peace. And so to begin to really think about that for ourselves, of going, hey, wait a minute here, hold up. We've got something here to think about of how are we doing with that peace, of how that attitude of love and grace can lead us to peace. Continuing on in verses 12 through 14, he's gonna, the writer here is going to reiterate it again. So strengthen your drooping hands and weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that if any part is lame, it will be healed rather than injured more seriously. Pursue the goal of peace along with everyone and holiness as well because no one will see the Lord without it. Pursue the goal of peace. And then this word holiness. And maybe we're thinking, oh, now you're on to being perfect. No. I mean, right? Maybe sometimes I think the, the closest to holy I get are my genes. And so this moment of going, what do you mean by holiness here? What is the writer meaning? If we are pursuing, if we are pursuing peace. If we're coming, if our attitude is from a place of love and grace, it doesn't actually mean that we're perfect, but instead we begin to have the mind of Christ. We begin to be connected to Christ in the ways that Christ was connected to God, in the ways that Christ was God. Just think about that for a moment. If Christ in the life, death, resurrection, in his teachings, in every aspect of him, is really about, it is really about the perfection of grace and love for humanity. It's what he's giving us. He's giving it and giving it and showing up with it 
And even when people are mean to him, when they betray him, when they're trying to trick him, he still keeps showing up with it. There's something holy, sacred, set apart about that. And so when we try to attempt, right, not perfect people, but when we're trying to be like, okay, if I'm leading with grace and love, if I'm able to lead with forgiveness and mercy, if I'm able to have that kind of attitude of, okay, how did Jesus deal with this? It begins to shift our behavior and connect us in ways to God that maybe we never expected to happen. It begins to shift the way we live. We begin to be connected wholly to the sacred, to God. Finishing up in verses 15 through 17. Make sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Make sure that no root of bitterness grows up that might cause trouble and pollute many people. Make sure that no one becomes sexually immoral or ungodly like Esau. He sold his inheritance as the oldest son for one meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he couldn't find a way to change his heart and life, though he looked for it with tears. That first line, verse 15, make sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Make sure that the way that we are living, the attitude that we have, the way that we're going about our day, make sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Does it mean we will get it right all the time? Absolutely not. Does it mean that we won't have to be like, ooh, shouldn't have said that? Mm -mm. No, shouldn't have done that. Ooh, that was a misstep. Ooh, ooh. We will have those moments. And yet, God's grace keeps coming for us. God's grace keeps being poured over us. We keep getting it. And so what does it mean to allow that to permeate our own life so that we begin to have that attitude, that starting point with others of God's grace? You know, I don't have it all together, so I'm sure that person over there doesn't have it all together. You know, they may not have meant to say what they did. Maybe they're just having a bad day, right? Maybe they need a little mercy and forgiveness. Maybe we just need to ask, how's your day going? Maybe they just need a little bit of compassion. Maybe they feel wounded, have been wounded, and are in need of healing, are in need of some encouragement. How do we begin from a place of grace? And then this where the writer goes into Esau about this, necess begins with grace and then talks about Esau in a really kind of weird way, right? There are two things that are said about Esau. Make sure that no one, okay, no one becomes sexually immoral or ungodly like Esau. All right, so the word here that's getting uh, translated as sexually immoral is related, uh, can also be translated as fornicator it can also be, it's related to the word that can be translated profane. What the writer here is trying to get at with the word, the Greek word here, is a sense of covenant breaker. And we, you know, we don't use that terminology very often, covenant breaker. And so what does that exactly mean? And 
Well, we can think of it more as breaker of promises. Of saying, wait a minute, Esau had the promise of as the firstborn, he could he was entitled to the inheritance. He was the one that had the blessing and he gave it all up. He said, I don't want it because he idolized in the moment. He idolized immediate gratification, immediate uh, fulfillment of whatever it was he needed. And so it talks about there that he sold it for, he sold that inheritance, he sold the blessing, he threw away the blessing for a meal. And so it's important to know that Esau in the biblical stories is portrayed as an unwise, knee-jerk reacting, only about immediate gratification. He will do anything in the moment to be comfortable in the moment because that's what he's idolizing, comfort in the moment that he will throw away that connection with God, that connection of blessing, that connection of care. And so Esau throws it away. He, we can read that story in Genesis of how he does that with Jacob. Now, Jacob is not a saint in this. Jacob is conniving and a trickster. But their past diverge because of this. Esau wants nothing to do with a blessing, and then he does, and then he doesn't, and then he's angry, and then he's angry at his brother, and he's angry at himself, and, and he, he starts making decisions that are just highly problematic. He goes off, he marries two Hittite women without consulting his mother, Rebecca, or his brother, Jacob, who is now head of the household because he had thrown that away. And Jacob goes off to do his own conniving, more trickster stuff. And he ends up wrestling with God. He ends up wrestling with God and kind of evolving and being molded in a new way. Does it mean that Jacob becomes this perfect guy? Absolutely not. He makes some really bad decisions and he plays favorites with his kids, which goes horribly wrong. However, it's a sense here that what do we get rid of? Do we throw away the promises of God? Do we say, you know what? I don't really care about peace because of, I'd rather sit in, right? There was that previous verse about bitterness, right? Make sure that no root of bitterness grows up that might cause trouble and pollute many people. When we start from a place of grace, bitterness and anger can't take root, and so here going, okay, what, what kind of path are we on? What path are we on? And maybe we need to shift paths. Maybe we're like, ooh, my life keeps sounding a little bit like Esau's, or maybe it keeps sounding a little bit like Jacob's, because like I said, Jacob's is not great. And so is there a sense of us giving up the blessings of God that are related to grace, which here is peace, the goal of peace? Are you pursuing the goal of peace? Are we going to have an attitude of grace and love or do we just find it to be way too difficult? We throw up our hands like Esau and are like, no, just give me the food. What are the things here that we are pursuing in life? What do we need to pursue? What is the attitude that we need to have? 
in ancient Greece, there was a sense of you needed to mold, instruct, train oneself, be disciplined in contemplating the good things. And that when we spent time studying and contemplating and honing our skills in those ways, that we would then produce a just society. This is Plato here. And to see how it begins to seep into Hebrews, the writer here is aware of all of that and of saying, okay, what are the good things that we're going to spend our time contemplating? Is our goal peace? Because if that's the case, then we need to understand the attitude that we have with grace and love that is connected to God. What is what are the things, our attitudes that we have? What are the things that we're focused upon that are connected to God or are just like, I, I don't really have time for that? What are the things that challenge us this day to endure, to come from a place, to be encouraged by, that are connected to Jesus' life, who is all about forgiveness, who is all about healing, who is like, you know what? Bad things happen. They really do. And yet we're going to keep showing up with grace and love because we are pursuing peace. So how will we be challenged by the writer of Hebrews this day? How will we be challenged by those teachings of Jesus so that we might become more fully connected to God, to God's love? Amen. Mm -hmm.